This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Lynchian role-playing. Marie Curie. Stews. And mystical economist George A.E. Russell. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of a dancing dwarf. Come, hold on. The gaming hut is black and white, and there's long red curtains, and if I didn't know better, I'd say I was talking backwards. Robin, oh, no. what's going on? Oh, I know what's going on. Patreon backer Drew Eicholtz has asked us a question that has reshaped the gaming hut, and the shape of the gaming hut is strange and parallelopied, and often in a, you know one of those diopter shots with their fisheye lens and whatnot. He asks, can an RPG be satisfactorily Lynchian, or is that simply an exercise in GM and player frustration? And Robin, given that not all David Lynch films are satisfactorily Lynchian, I would say (laughs) that if we wanted to, we could say, nope, sorry, not necessarily, and then we skip off into the night, but I suspect we would do a deeper dive into what's going on here. Robin, what do you think? Right. So the trick is, is of course, to pick the right Lynch thing to base your uh, RPG on. And uh, why not pick the one that uh, is a police procedural? (laughs) Uh, That is a weird mystery that when he very recently did a third season of, it was a lot like the Esoterrorist. So yes, of course, (laughs) you can uh, certainly uh, do uh, Twin Peaks uh, with the serial numbers uh, filed off. I would not uh, necessarily want to do, on one hand, Inland Empire, as yeah, an extended I, campaign. I, I barely wanted to do it while I was watching it. I, I don't regret having watched it, but I, I don't think you could do anything involving narrative with it. Right. Uh, well, it's it's sort of a dream. It, it also is a mystery. It's an existential mystery. Yeah, We've talked right. about those mm-hmm. earlier on the podcast. And the, that's about a mystery of how do I get out of this dream state, uh, which is not necessarily going to be interesting to most, is going to be frustrating after perhaps hour two or three. And and also, on the other hand, I wouldn't want to do the extended uh, uh, straight story uh, role-playing game either. Yeah. Because you can only go so far and you're writing more uh, before people want other choices available to them. It'd, but, it'd be a very strange uh, version of Ryutama. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> but a, a Twin Peaks influence game, is uh, absolutely, I would say, on the menu. And uh, the question is, how much of it do you want to uh, preserve uh, for players? Are the players going to, for example, want all of the soap opera part? Or are they going to focus more on the uh, uh, murder mystery and the investigation? And once you do that, I think, you know, unknown armies, esoterrorists, there's all all sorts of, uh, you know, existing... Uh, things where you just sort of have to tweak the atmosphere a little bit to, to get where you want to go. Yeah. On the topic of existing things, let me recommend Tall Pines, which I played at New Mexicon in playtest and was a very satisfactorily um, uh, Twin Peaksian uh, game. And I do not right off the top of my head remember the career. And Something is Wrong Here by Kira McGran uh, is another uh, game in the Lynchian uh, space. And so if you are looking for games that are literally designed to give you that beautiful Twin Peaks, Mulholland Drive, strange mystery feel, uh, those games are literally des- designed to do so. And again, I've played Tall Pines and it's 
great fun. And Kira McGran is a terrific designer. So I'm sure something is wrong here is also very good. But in terms of taking your sort of less indie space custom uh, designed uh, RPG and turning it in a Lynchian direction. Yeah, I think that, I mean, Unknown Armies, I think, lets you start a little closer to it than maybe the Esoterrorists does, but I think that they're both certainly down to it. And a lot of it, especially as you get into a a, uh, a less customized uh, gaming experience, something that's intended to uh, be not just a one-shot, but a, a serial play, is it is going to come down to GMing style and uh, sort of the, the things that you have in your hip pocket not necessarily the rule set. I mean, I wouldn't want to try it with, you know, 5e necessarily, but uh, there's plenty of other, like you say, games that are in that sort of occult horror-y space that could work for one aspect or another of uh, of the Twin Peaks, Mulholland Drive sort of uh, space, right? Right. Um, and the reason I mentioned the Esoterrors is for a couple of reasons. One, it's an array of different agents and law enforcement uh, officers all sort of uh, working together in concert. So you already got your uh, ensemble of uh, professionals uh, going up against uh, something weirder than they normally tackle. And also, especially in uh, the most recent season, it's about uh, dire demonic forces attempting to pierce the membrane and mm-hmm. enter our, our reality. Yeah. So, Bob is definitely an outer dark entity. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think then it comes down to coming up with a mystery that is not exactly that mystery or maybe you could right it could turn out to be bob mm-hmm. so uh, the original show just starts out with a regular murder mystery and its supernatural uh, paranormal elements are not apparent from the jump and then as it goes along you know the the demonic stuff and the black lodge and all the extra dimensional material uh, starts to gradually uh, come in that brings us to the perennial and recently visited topic of how soon do you turn something weird? How do you make it clear to the players that you're going to nerd trope it? Do you do that in uh, episode one? Do you do that in episode five? When do you uh, when do you get there? And I think that we covered this already, mm. but it's uh, it basically comes down to the taste of your individual players and how impatient they're uh, going to get waiting for the, the weird stuff to start happening. And I suspect that with a game that is intended to evoke the feel of David Lynch, you need player buy-in before you try it. Because if you could imagine sitting down to Twin Peaks and expecting like, you know, CSI or something, you'd be very angry. (laughs) Um, If you sit down to Twin Peaks and you expect Twin Peaks, then you are also very angry, but that's during the last part of season two. But if you sit down and you're like, this is going to be a David Lynch ride, nothing in season three throws you, although you are lost and confused and baffled and maybe angry during it, but you're like in that Lynchian yes. context. It, it might be hard to role play the uh, episode that's an hour long homage to Stan Brackage. Exactly. But, you know, maybe not because that to me struck me as a, as, as an amazing way to present. I mean, you could use the role playing medium to make that episode where you've got a bunch of pre gen characters and you give them to the people and say, here's the situation go. And when they've, Juice to scene, take it away. It's, it's very, um, very drama system in a way, although the characters aren't connected by anything except for this, uh, nuclear unease that is the, uh, the overarching theme of it. And so I could imagine having a, a, a quite an interesting session. Again, doing it as an entire serial thing where you're doing that the whole game would get very wearing. But once you've sort of gotten them into it, to have that as a way you present and have them play out and experience whatever the a reality at the core of the unease is, uh, would kind of, I think it would really feed the role playing medium a lot. Yeah. I would say to go beyond uh, buy-in to, to also getting collaboration yeah. to tell everybody up front, we're doing either literally twin peaks where, you know, the log lady shows up or we're doing a twin peaks esque thing. Yeah. And I mean, if you tell them you're all working for the Blue Rose division of the FBI, I think that will, you know, that that'll get the the, the people paying attention to pay attention. But there are going to be people who, for whatever reason, you know, uh, did not see uh, season three. And so you may have to get specific buy in and say we're doing Lynch. And then a lot of people will have problems with some of Lynch because he is like like all uh, artists. There is uh, degrees of his work that people do not 
want to uh, engage with. So someone could say, are we doing Wild at Heart Lynch? Because I'm back out again. And then you say, no, 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 we're doing Twin Peaks Lynch. Right. And and I would go so far as to, you know, play the theme music, play the Angela Bedalamenti music mm-hmm. at the beginning and, you know, set up clips from the show, whether you're literally using any of those characters or situations or not, and create then early scenes that foster that mix of uh, sort of uh, low-level horror and psychic dissociation with weird comedy and in order to to sort of establish the tone as soon as possible and then uh, start to move into solving whatever uh, mystery it is so that the uh, players know that they're in a David Lynch surreal Twin Peaks sort of situation, yeah. but the uh, characters don't initially necessarily. Right. Or or you could, you know, have them, you know, they've they've got the, instead of the uh, Armitage files, they've got the Cooper files. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, because Cooper has disappeared to another reality. So somebody's got to step in and deal with all of the copious loose ends. You could actually literally just rewatch the third season and look at everything that, there is never an explanation for this and have them, you know, have them go uh, investigate that weird apartment in New York City where the outer dark entity is materializing. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, even in a, in, in a way that third series was itself a Armitage Files type episode because it was all the search for David Bowie's character from Fire Walk With Me in a way. Um, he becomes the sort of Armitage at the center of it. And so you have a lot of you have a lot of possibilities uh, either with the Twin Peaks, you know, canon or with the Twin Peaks universe or just with a Twin Peaks sensibility. And I think that your uh, thing in Yellow King, where you ask players to provide their own damn peculiar event can be harnessed here where they provide maybe four or five damn peculiar events that they, of the sort that they would expect to see in a Lynchian universe. And then you, the GM take all those events and, maybe apply one player's event unless they've specifically done it for their character, but ideally you decouple them from character to make them as arbitrary and strange as a Lynchian event is. And then you take those, that panoply of, of peculiarities and you apply them throughout the show to give the sort of weird half familiar. Oh, I kind of remember this feel that a lot of uh, Twin Peaks has so that they're like, Oh yeah, I suggested this a long time ago and here it is in a weird, strange format, but being done to, you know, uh, Diane's character, not to my character. That's wild. Um, and then, you know, I, I think allowing players to narrate each other's dream sequences and things like that is helpful. Uh, especially if you provide them some constraints, it's like, okay, you narrate such and such, you know, you, you uh, Diane, you narrate Eric's, pl- uh, dream sequence and you have to use, uh, the color blue and a moose because we've established that those are weird pregnant symbols so far. So go to. Um, and I, I think that if you start allowing players to feed in and you encourage them to do it in a uh, surrealist, literally surrealist sense, in the sense of they have to reach below their intentional creativity and try and provide something that rhymes but does not reason, right? Right. Uh, for extra points, uh, you could follow the structure of the recent series and have different groups of players working in parallel, perhaps uh, even on different nights as you play remotely. So you could have your, uh, you know, Twin Peaks Police Department uh, group playing one night and have your FBI group playing the other night. And then they uh, come together and cross over after a while and uh, and all meet up and uh, you can have them compare uh, notes or even, you know, encourage them to communicate uh, offline on your Slack channel where they're not actually uh, playing face to face, but rather they are each revealing to each other the results of their investigations. And that could be a fun thing to do uh, in our present era of remote play, where instead of, you know, sitting there and half the time listening as other people do things, you can have a short, you know, 90 minute session with one group of players. Uh, and then, uh, which is, uh, you know, part of remote play is you want to kind of tighten it up a bit for people's comfort and attention span. And then, you know, the other group can play for another 90 minutes and then you can mix them and match them and have them cross paths or have them never actually play face to face, but still communicate with one another via text messages as uh, created on, on your Slack channel, for example, which could even be the actual text messages that they're sending each other. Exactly. Send yeah. them in character. 
And so with the image of texting each other, things like, uh, Diane, I'm entering the town of Twin Peaks. Can't wait to get some coffee. Uh, maybe we should go get some coffee and maybe some excellent pie and uh, come back for another segment, Robin. Indeed, yes. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Balapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press Store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. The bubbling retorts, the whir of the Van de Graaff generator, the crackle of the Jacob's Ladder welcome us to a place where we can have fun with science. And today's fun with science has a certain uh, fusty, not to say Bella Pock tone to it, but don't worry, there's also the glow of the future, because today we're talking about the literally lovely and amazingly talented Marie Sladowska Curie. Robin, why don't you tell us? where she is in 1895, and let's hope it's Paris, because if it's Warsaw, we're all going to look dumb. Yes. Yes. So uh, we're mentioning Marie Curie here in uh, <laughs> regard to her being a figure in the Yellow King role-playing game, particularly in the Belle Epoque Paris original uh, section. And uh, indeed, yes, she returns to Paris in the middle of 1895. She's 28 years old in 1895 and uh, is on the brink of the major discoveries that make her one of the most important uh, scientists of all time, one of the few people to win two Nobel Prizes and uh, win them in two separate categories. Um, as uh, you've mentioned, she's from uh, Poland, and uh, she uh, has already fallen in love with Pierre Curie. Initially, she's sort of reluctant to marry him, although she's drawn to him as he's a, a somewhat older colleague. Uh, but she's thinking that she's going to go back and live in Poland. And then she goes to Poland and finds out that her uh, the career prospects for a uh, a woman scientist are uh, even more uh, constrained in Poland than they would be in Paris. Uh, so she returns, and uh, she and Pierre begin working on their um, experiments together. Her real life uh, resume: she's the one who coins the term radioactivity. She discovers two elements, and I think you know most people were are happy to stop at one element, but she discovers uh, radium and polonium, which she uh, names after her native Poland. And, and, not in, and not in the cheap way that uh, Glenn Seaborg discovered them, just by turning up the accelerator. <laughs> she did it the hard way. Right. Um, so th the idea is uh, <laughs> to have her as a potential uh, patron for uh, the players, and and she gives a sort of a fun kind of weird science-y feel. We've been talking a lot about 
uh, occult figures in Paris. And we're going to still get to a little bit of occult in this segment. Uh, but uh, I thought it would be interesting to have someone who, uh, first of all, a, a famous person who's sort of on the brink of her great career, uh, but in a Paris infected by the Carcosan energies of the Yellow King, who knows what's uh, turning up in her uh, lab experiments. And uh, she may have discovered that all of a sudden all of her instrumentation has gone fluey and the things that uh, seemed uh, certain are now uncertain. And when she uh, runs across the uh, players and finds out that they're, the characters are asking uh, questions about the, uh, the King in Yellow and they know about this uh, weird alien realm and... Uh, uh, she's uh, figured out that uh, other scientists, uh, their, their experiments have gone awry after uh, coming across the King in Yellow. Perhaps she even knows someone who uh, uh, accidentally discovered a, a marbleizing array. And so this gets the, the weird science bit. And she then, uh, she's not an investigator. She's a, a lab person. So she might get the uh, the player characters together and sort of guide them and give them uh, either weird science-y advice um, she can give them weird science missions and sometimes maybe even like she could come up with a, uh, a yellow King detecting uh, ray so that uh, she could uh, help them find uh, Carcosan energy, wherever it uh, might be. Like a Geiger counter for Carcosa. Yes. I, I think that the really great road in for Marie Curie is definitely the marbleizing fluid. If you, you know, um, if, if a sample of it uh, survived the, you know, clearing out of Boris Yvain's, laboratory maybe she's asked to analyze that maybe someone has rediscovered it and the golden flashes have a radioactive component and she discovers it independently but i definitely think that if you're doing a weird science carcosa feel thing anyway that definitely bringing her on via the mask is the good on-ramp but i think that the other thing that i think people maybe might sleep on is that um uh, i think she is also you know, someone, she's not a physicist per se, in the sense that she's not a theoretical physicist, she's very much a practical physicist, but it, it's going to take a, a physicist mind to deal with these sort of time dilation, strange effects of perception and reality that Carcosa has. And rather than go deal with that jerk Einstein, I think Marie Curie can simultaneously be someone who is well enough versed in the broader field of physics to know that this is a strange paraphysical phenomenon, but is also not going to uh, be casting it in terms that are immediately overly familiar to the players. And so she can, she can present things like time dilation and uh, as, as, a, as a possibility without necessarily even you using the words time dilation. And uh, she has, she has a, a, a perfect spot there between the the practical and the theoretical to let you, you know, do a, a, what it would ordinarily be very unrealistic things where, well, the one moment she's building the Carcosa Geiger counter, the other moment she's theorizing about the, the time altering effects of the, of the yellow King play in a way that, you know, Einstein couldn't build a Geiger counter and Rutherford uh, couldn't uh, guess about time dilation. But I think Marie Curie is in that sweet spot where she can actually be like a TV or movie physicist and, and be doing the, the, the big theoretical work, you know, in a way that expands and confounds the mystery for the players, uh, while also uh, giving you practical things like, oh, I don't know, a tincture of radium that um, uh, you can uh, use to splash on uh, Carcosan so you can track them back to their lair. In real life, she, uh, during World War I, helps to organize a, a mobile radiography uh, unit in uh, our history, she dies in 1934, aged uh, 66. But uh, you could decide to, in your uh, version of the wars, the alternate history, she could uh, survive uh, longer. She could uh, perhaps one of the things that the players, uh, dis uh, player characters discover in 1895 allows her to uh, counter the radiation poisoning that causes her to die of aplastic anemia in 34. And she could then still be uh, quite elderly, but alive during 1947 and involved in uh, creating counters to uh, Carcosan war technology uh, in the wars. Um, you can also, if you would like, flash forward uh, to a time between the official time periods of the game and do something in 1906 when the uh, players uh, player characters are about 10 years older because 1906 she and 
uh, her husband Pierre attend Eusapia Palladino's uh, seances. Uh, we've talked about her before, uh, particularly in connection to Charles Rocher, uh, who is a figure who, uh, another one of those uh, occult figure investigator types who bridges the uh, Belle Epoque and uh, then the Dreamhounds uh, period. But in 1906, uh, Eusebio Palladino is holding seances and uh, the Curies get involved. So tell us uh, can about Eusebio Palladino. Uh, Eusebio Palladino was a, well, let's, uh, I guess we can say that she was a spirit medium without going into the fraught question of was she also or primarily a uh, person who pretended to be a spirit medium because she certainly presented herself publicly as a spirit medium and did spirit medium-y things, uh, maybe, and certainly not including uh, talking to the dead. But she was a, a big uh, giant a celebrity in that field and was a cause celeb. There was a lot of people that, that uh, came to investigate her. Um, she was a big sensation and was one of those sort of hardcore test cases that, uh, because she began being a, um, uh, a medium in the 1890s, you, that first wave of the society for psychic investigation and all the other uh, type people are getting into the question of, is this real or is this science? Is it magic? Is it supernatural? Is it just illusion? And all of those four uh, sides are, are having their fight over uh, Eusebio Palladino. And so the Curies and Charles Rocher and also the philosopher Henri Bergson, who, as we mentioned before, is the uh, brother to uh, Moina Mathers of the Golden Dawn uh, fame, uh, all start uh, attending these uh, seances. Initially, Pierre is more interested uh, than Marie, uh, and he is enlisted in creating restraints for her at the table in order to prevent her from engaging in trickery. Because, um, And uh, as uh, has been established uh, elsewhere and later, it turns out that scientists are not necessarily the people you want to go to to uh, prevent people from using stage magic, uh, that uh, perhaps you want to find right. stage magicians to do that because uh, scientists are used to uh, isotopes don't lie to them, right. but they, uh, they, people they do. Almost never do. Yes, they might be in two different states at once, but they're they're not purposely deceiving you. Um, at any rate, uh, there is a very uh, evocative part of this story in that uh, Pierre Curie, who by then is the physics chair at the Sor Sorbonne. Uh, announces to his colleagues that he is going to uh, set up a the Sorbonne equivalent of the Society of Psychic Research. He's going to make uh, investigation into the paranormal part of the brief of that venerable uh, educational institution. And then the very next day, he is struck and killed by a carriage. And if you can't make a mystery out of that, that someone was trying to stop him from doing something, uh, you don't know how to mess with history at all, do you? Right. Yes. That's, that's, that's literally history. Just laying it out there saying, no, no, I'm full. You eat whatever you want. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's all manner of, of uh, stuff going on right around in that era. And this is also where um, the uh, one of the British heads of the SPR um, and who is also a, a spy. He's a part of MI6 Everard Fielding um, is uh, investigating her. And he uh, does a full investigation in 1910, but he's been looking into her, you know, basically from this moment on and has been uh, trying to figure out what is she doing that's real and what is she doing that's fakery. I believe that he believes she is a big old fake. So so if you want to get um, intelligence agencies involved, there you go. Everett Fielding is, is tied right into it. Um, and he's, he's, he's a long-term psychic researcher at this point. He's still fairly young, uh, you know, wet behind the ears. Um, he's in his thirties during the yellow King period. So he'd be in his forties during this era. So not as young as all that. Uh, so that's how you can, you can draw spies in again. It involves moving the timeline ahead, uh, by a decade one way or the other, but I think you can do that. Um, certainly with the yellow King involved, we just said the word time dilation for goodness sake. Right. Uh, uh, if you ever want to move the timeline ahead in, in yellow King role-playing game, what I found useful to do was to finish up the Paris segment and then uh, during a later segment, uh, in, I did during uh, Aftermath, you then have a flashback where the players go back and play their Paris characters later on. And then whatever happens in that later on episode then feeds back into the next episode of, of Aftermath. 
So uh, Marie Curie becomes a little more interested in this after the death of her husband. She takes his clothes to Eusebio Palladino in hopes of uh, uh, getting uh, some sort of contact with him. Uh, and as I suggested, she could be uh, alive even uh, during the wars. And in a world of weird, weird science, uh, who knows, maybe she could come back as a radium ghost in uh, in aftermath and uh, perhaps even a an AI hologram in This Is Normal Now. Yep. Um, or there could be you know, something in that this is normal now where the Institute Curie, which is a real thing in Paris and is a big deal, uh, physics laboratory, um, starts running into strange radiations that the players in the 1895 episode remember, but because the Institute Curie doesn't have the research from that timeline, they're just as baffled and confounded. And if a player is, you know, when the players are, are drawn to that, they have a memory that, oh, it's the radiation from then, and it's showing up now. It's expanding and breaking through in an alternate timeline, just like Marie Curie predicted. And on that note, I think it's time. I think I smell something really enticing on the other side of this commercial. So let's head on over there. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast stew pot bubbling by joining such Epicurean Patreon backers as Graham Wells, Jack Gulick, Joshua Blue, Kelly Fisher, and Theron Bratz. The bubbling of pots and the reaction of mailards tell us that we're once more standing in the delicious confines of the food hut. And this time around, Ken, we're going to follow up a, a suggestion that you uh, dropped a little earlier, which is that people might find that there's a moment in time when they want to think more about stews, cozy things that you can eat at home that are uh, comforting and uh, perhaps even have uh, leftovers so that you can uh, give yourself a break from all the extra home cooking you're doing. So, Ken, often our gaming hut segments begin with a uh, semantic tussle or two. And uh, in this case, I find myself sort of wondering what's in my repertoire that actually uh, counts as a stew. And I think the answer in general is uh, depends on how you define stew. So wh what is a what is a stew that isn't a curry, that isn't a... What's a stew, man? What's what's our parameters here? All right. A, a stew, by and large, although there are vegetable stews, is where you, you cook an ingredient, usually a meat as a, accompanied by vegetables, and you cook it in liquid, which is usually stock but can be wine, um, and a gravy emerges, and uh, it is the fact that it is gravied that separates it from a soup. And it is the fact that it is generally slow cooked that separates it from a braise, which is just cooking something in liquid. And so the the, the fact that it um, is slow cooked to produce gravy is, I think, the sort of core quality of a stew. Um, and in my repertoire, Robin, uh, my beef bourguignon has uh, aroused comment from all manner of, uh, of audiences. I have a carbonade that is still about halfway to being tasty because I keep uh, messing with the ratios, but someday I will, I will kill it. And uh, my um, uh, cassoulet is actually pretty darn good, uh, which I don't know if the introduction of beans uh, to the stew uh, changes people's definition, but 
I think of cassoulet as a as a type of stew. Um, Dobe, I've I've made a good one of those. Um, I, I would like it to be a type of stew because it's really about the only stew that I make. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, fabada, I just made a fabada of sorts. It was called a nabada because I didn't have enough sausages. So I made it with chicken, uh, drumsticks instead. So it turned into a, a wild, uh, thing. I am a big fan. I guess we'll get into that in the, in the, in, in the later segment of, of diverse meats in your stew or, and playing with flavors like that. I have a fajuada that kills, but, uh, I don't have the ingredients for it because it involves, fairly specialized meat ingredients that I do not have on hand. I, I was going to make fajuada this, this winter already. And now I'm really going to make fajuada. You don't have to wait until August because uh, it's amazing. It's Brazilian stew uh, made with a bunch of different pieces of pork and special uh, sausage called linguiza and um, uh, 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 carne seca, which is dried beef. It, it's got a lot of uh, great stuff going on and it's an amazing killer. And I think um, gumbo is stew, right? It's thickened, yes. right? It's thickened with okra or filet or whatever, um, uh, or you can make it with a roux, which is how I make gumbo. My gumbo is amazing. So yeah, I've, I've apparently I'm a stew guy. I, I I like stew. I don't like bad stew. I think no one likes bad stew, and I think that the sort of quote unquote beef stew or quote unquote Irish stew that a lot of people have eaten is terrible because it's overcooked. The meat didn't have any flavor to begin with. It's under seasoned. Uh, there's too many carrots in it. Whatever the problem is. And I think that that is maybe given stew a bad name. Also, the fact that it is traditionally uh, something you do with the leftovers is maybe something that causes people to turn up their noses at stew. Yes. Well, th th this is my this is my reason why I don't go through cookbooks uh, looking for stews, uh, because as a uh, having grown up as a child in the late 60s and early 70s in central Ontario, that 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 was what I think of as stew, a, a nasty concoction where the. Uh, the meat tastes like potatoes and carrots and, uh, the, and, and not like your, uh, hip artisanal carrots of today, but your bitter seventies carrots. Your bad and carrots. So, yeah. Yes. So I uh, developed an aversion to, to stew and it probably even a lot of the time was canned, mm -hmm. uh, which of course well, that's, is, a, that's its own problem. Yes. We're, we're not having an open a can hut. Right. No, <laughs> I, I think people, I think our audience gifted and talented as they are, can open cans without our help. Yes. And, and no, not to. <laughs> and, and no, not to ask us about it anyway. Yes. You already mentioned my, uh, my one stew of choice, which is the, uh, the cassoulet. Um, we have yet to mention the instant pot. So of course now's the time to mention it. It's yep. a great, uh, nice, neat, uh, way to, uh, create something over a long period of time where you just, uh, put a bunch of stuff in and, uh, leave it to uh, cook and everything kind of comes out as a stew anyway, because you're, uh, yeah, almost I mean, instant pot almost stews whatever you're making because you need to include at least a quarter cup of liquid. Right. And so some of the things that, that I have done wind up, my premise is, you know, embrace the broth. Mm -hmm. that, yes, there's this liquid in it and you serve it as in a sort of a quasi broth. Um, also the tagine. Yeah. Um, I have made some I've, tagines. I have made those. a number of tagines. I, I spent a year when I was doing a bunch of Moroccan recipes because that's how I cook is I pick a thing that I want to do for that year and then I play with it and... Uh, turns out Moroccan food is amazing and tagines are great fun and you don't even need the magic pot to do it. You can make perfectly good tagines with, with a decent uh, pot with a lid at home. So don't feel like you need the clay pot. Yes. That, that was developed before the advent of the instant pot mm -hmm. two and a half years ago. And, and I guess this brings us to the other part of our uh, discussion is that now uh, in the, in the lockdown times, uh, you want to minimize the number of times you're headed out to the grocery store. And that has changed the way that I'm cooking at home, certainly, because I'm accustomed to sort of a more market style cooking where, yes, I go grocery shopping every week and pick up staples. But when I want to make a, you know, a meal where that's the centerpiece of the, the activity for the uh, particularly on the weekends that I'm used to figuring out what I want to cook, looking at the recipe book, if it's something new and different and going out and uh, picking those ingredients or conversely going out to the produce shop, seeing what looks good and then making something based on something that. around that. Yeah. Now it's all about uh, making uh, an even more careful grocery list than before, uh, but just bringing home a bunch of stuff that looks good and then figuring out uh, how that goes well together. And that's a style of cooking that I think is about finding your 
genres of presentation and then seeing what variations that you can uh, do to uh, create enough variation over a period of days because you're probably cooking more, even if you are getting a delivery occasionally, right. which is also a good thing to do to try and keep uh, the hospitality industry somewhat alive in, in this time. So you can sort of think of what your baselines are around what starch it is that you're operating with. So uh, you can do, you know, a rice dish, which has, you know, then X number of vegetables or X number X minus one vegetables and a meat. Uh, you can do your uh, pastas. I'm a big lover of the sort of no sauce pasta where there's an interesting uh, topping often done on the stovetop. And then uh, rather than having a, a white sauce or a red sauce, just uh, olive oil on the pasta. And that, uh, again, gives you an infinite number of, uh, of variations. Oh, yes. uh, one a- of my... Any stew worth its name can be served over egg noodles. Yes. You know, and as soon as you've got a bunch of different noodles, there are noodles from all around the world and they have quite different uh, profiles. And uh, if you have some chow mein noodles, uh, you can uh, crisp them up in the uh, in the air fryer that you bought after hearing me talk about <laughs> air fryers a while ago. So you've got your, your rice, your pasta, and uh, particularly in these times, uh, don't always worry about uh, something that is uh, fancy and thematic, but the good old-fashioned meat and two veg or uh, mushrooms and two veg mm-hmm. is you know, uh, eminently uh, fine cooking. And uh, eventually we're going to get to grilling season. If you're, if you're lucky enough to have uh, access to a grill, it's not going to break your uh, self-isolation routine. That'll uh, open up opportunities as well. But uh, uh, this is a, a great time, I think, to learn to sort of expand your parameters of what makes an interesting meal by looking at all the produce that you bought in a really big hurry mm-hmm. while you're out and seeing, wow, this is, I don't usually combine this or that. Another little lockdown tip I would uh, give though is to uh, pick up some more pickles, uh, whether we're talking literal uh, jars of pickles or whether we're talking sauerkraut, other, uh, you know, a good quality sauerkraut in a jar that's, uh, you know, not just your store brand one, but has something going on uh, that that in and of itself heat up some sauerkraut. And that's a perfectly delicious sign that goes with a lot of uh, different things, especially pork and, it, and not just pork. And I will say that uh, sauerkraut or if you've got uh, lots of Indian pickle from whatever, anything with that sharp vinegary flavor is going to go well with stew because the stew uh, by dint of its creation is not going to be sharp. Whatever else it is, it's not going to be that. So you serve stew next to, uh, like you say, a sauerkraut or or even just a heavily vinaigretted dressing on your salad, um, that's going to wake up the stew, even if the stew is the second time you've had the stew. Maybe uh, that's something that will let you sh- uh, uh, sharpen it up uh, on your in your palate and on your table. And also the, the roast, is uh, the vegetable roast, is uh, a, a great cornerstone that, uh, again, enables you to combine whatever it is that you found, three or four of those things, uh, put them in a pan, roast them up. It's uh, uh, so many vegetables are really uh, tricked into being delicious by being roasted from your from your bok choy to your Brussels sprouts uh, to your uh, yams or your your squash. You can cut up squash into bits and roast those, and uh, that uh, gives you a great hearty staple that you can repeat with minor variations and not feel like you're you know stuck in the same. A few things that you're you're constantly making. And again, I alluded previously to the notion of multi meat stews. But if you've got um, whether it's leftovers or because of uh, uneven uh, eating habits, maybe you've got one or two leftover sausages. Those can go uh, right into a stew, as opposed to becoming the sad uh, main ingredient of a mostly uh, vegetable or, or pasta main course. You can put them into a chicken stew, and they will make everything exciting in the way that jambalaya is made exciting by andouille sausage. You can do that with any kind of uh, stew. You toss in your sausages. The sausages will give of their delicious uh, fat and seasonings, and they will provide a a, a wonderful contrast, both texturally and flavor-wise, to whatever you were making before. I, there, depending on the sausage, there's almost no stew you can't put into it or put it into. Um, if it's a super spicy sausage, maybe don't put it into a uh, uh, an intentionally bland stew or you don't um uh you know have the flavors fight but 
you can probably think of a, a chicken stew you can make with almost any kind of sausage, and it's going to improve it and make it very tasty. And remember, kids, if you if you take the meat out of the casing, a sausage turns out to be just a whole bunch of meatballs that somebody else has already made for exactly. you. Exactly. And on that note, uh, let us uh, see what uh, what lurks on the other side. Now that we've now that we've filled ourselves up with stew, we'll be well and properly dazed and uh, and ready to let just any old nonsense into our heads. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilization separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dads. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. It's time once again to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to wave at the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and head on into the Edwardian parlor, where in his smoking jacket awaits the consulting occultist. This time around, it's esteemed patron backer Peter Williamson consulting the occultist about George Russell, otherwise known as A.E. Peter says, I remember walking past a commemorative plaque uh, to him in a leafy Dublin suburb once that read, Poet, Painter, Economist, Mystic. That certainly stopped me in my tracks. Uh, So, Ken, uh, what can you tell us about uh, George Russell? George Russell is um, a great figure of the sort that if he had just been uh, an economist, and a newspaper man, no one would remember him, but he would be super important by himself. He was the Irish version of what was called the Grange Movement in America, where the farmers all noticed that the big banks kept all the money, and so they started to form their own farm cooperative banks. And you are right now literally going to sleep because there is nothing more boring than farm policy and banking policy together. Yes. But that people are going, didn't you do an agricultural collective last week? What's, what's up wrong with, with you people? But in fact, this was George Russell's, I don't, I don't know how to call it a calling because his calling, he thought, was to be a painter. He studied at the Metropolitan School of Art. That's where he met William Butler Yeats, his buddy, close friend, a colleague, a sparring partner, all manner of things, and became a painter and poet. And because his poetry was very good, he was asked to write for the uh, newspaper. And because because he wrote things, he was asked to give speeches on those things. And it turns out that George Russell, kind of against his will, was one of those people that Whenever you met him, he knew two other people you should meet. He was a a classic uh, connector. And so he would go around the country giving his beautiful poetic speeches about farm uh, cooperative banking and set up a bunch of uh, agricultural co-ops. And those became a network of alternative finance, basically, for the Irish people so they didn't have to deal with what were called the gobbins, who were basically people who had connections of some sort with the British rule, and so they had control of all the liquid cash in the county. And so the the gobbins would uh, be little tiny political and economic machines, and so you had to, uh, if you wanted to borrow to, to plant your, your crops, you had to borrow from the gombeans, and then the gombeans got more powerful. Uh, what uh, Russell was doing was undermining British power in the best imaginable way by taking the farm's ability to operate out of the hands of these uh, gombeans. And so uh, Russell goes around doing that. He becomes ever more politically active, and as he's doing so, he becomes ever more socially prominent because his poetry is, stays in print the whole time. He's um, becoming more and more 
uh, beloved. He, his buddy Yates is talking him up. He's uh, meeting other people. He's with uh, John uh, uh, Singleton Singe. He's with all the other uh, Lady Wild, all the other members of the Irish Renaissance. And he is a core uh, connector of it. And although I don't know that a lot of people are quoting A.E.'s poetry now, A.E., by the way, is the uh, pseudonym that he used uh, because he and Butler Yates were messing around, possibly high, and uh, he whispered the word eon, uh, and he said that was the first word ever uttered, and so it was decided that the A.E. at the front of eon should be his initial. And this is, you will begin to suspect, right around the time that he gets into theosophy. Uh, he joins the Theosophical Lodge in um, uh, in Dublin in 1887 uh, and becomes its librarian in 1890. Uh, so he joins at age 20 and uh, by 23 is its librarian, um, which, again, lets him read all the Theosophical books and meet everyone in the lodge, especially the writers and scholars. He's a big believer, not just in farm cooperatives, but in uh, what he would, what he called a uh, deepening, uh, the Irish intellectual, uh, reservoir, right? So you would have, um, right now he thought that the, because there'd been no universities in Ireland, no one was trained to think. And so he wanted, uh, people who were, uh, trained to think and trained to think and theosophy do not necessarily join up, uh, in our <laughs> estimation, but, uh, R George Russell would have disagreed and he would have disagreed in a very clever way. Uh, that would have sounded very mean, but you would not have felt offended. And that is how he talked to people. And everyone would sort of compare notes and say, I think AE gave me a sick burn, but I didn't mind it because he was so amazing. And he was uh, very popular. He became a, like I say, a newspaper man. He was uh, working for a, a newspaper that was basically the newspaper of the, of the uh, agricultural co-op movement um, that rapidly became uh, obviously the newspaper of the independent Ireland movement or a newspaper of the independent Ireland movement. He designed the starry plow flag, which combines a plowshare, a flag and the big dipper into one emblem uh, to be used. And it's still used by a huge panoply of Irish political opinion. He was a socialist by sort of instinct and belief because he's out there setting up these farm co-ops. He identified himself at various times as a communist, but didn't mean by that Bolshevism. He meant sort of, uh, communal farming type communism. So it was sort of Owenite socialism, really. Uh, his paintings, uh, you can do an, uh, a Google image search for them, and they're quite vividly colored. Uh, they look like watercolors. I'm not sure if they literally are, but they, uh, they're they full of mystical... There's there's some, you know, just good old-fashioned scenery and stuff, but there's also a lot of uh, mystical symbolism and glowing uh, numinous figures. There's a sea serpent one that is uh, uh, quite fetching, and so... Uh, if you decide to bring him into your uh, game, uh, you've got all sorts of great visual aids. He himself is uh, marvelously beardy, mm -hmm. uh, as uh, as one is supposed to be during the Victorian uh, uh, era, and he has a pulse nez on his perched on his nose. Yes. And his um, paintings, so if I, I should burst in here, uh, were created after clairvoyant visions in which he beheld things and. People would say, oh, so you you looked back in time? He says, well, except for the time that I talked with the Dark Lady of the Sonnets and got her perspective on things, most of my visions are of a spiritual nature, and you can't just talk to these people. So he would paint what he saw, but he, what he saw was was magically uh, in, in, infused. And again, this is at the same time that William Butler Yeats is trying to summon up fairies and, and talk uh, to spirits and find the, the secret gods of Ireland. And in fact... According to uh, Yates's father, in summer of 1897, Yates and Russell ran off to Sligo to, quote, find a new god. And uh, whether or not he found a new god, the year after that, he married a spiritualist Violet North and uh, stayed with her until uh, she died in uh, 1932. And uh, their marriage produced two sons and a lot of acrimony. Um, and I don't know on what basis there was acrimony. Uh, I did not d uh, deep dive, but it's not, it, it's, it's the sort of household where since you have to go off to Mullingar and give a big speech to the agricultural commune, you're happy to do that. Uh, he didn't much like traveling, but I think he liked staying home with Violet North less. So uh, he doesn't show up in, in Paris, but your yellow King role-playing uh, game uh, characters in Paris can uh, take a detour. They can be hunting down a copy of the, uh, the play or, a rumor of the presence of the 
uh, Yellow King. And it certainly, in one of the stories, the Yellow King describes himself as a living god. So perhaps in 1897, they take a uh, a summer jaunt to Ireland to uh, prevent Russell and Yeats from uh, meeting up with the wrong sort of, uh, of evil god. And of course, he's hanging out with playwrights. So there we are. Yep. That's that's always a sign of trouble. National theater. Now he is a, obviously a big uh, influential figure in the development of a, a sense of uh, Irish national identity. Today, is his mysticism remembered as uh, part of his uh, uh, legacy, or is that bit sort of uh, uh, swept under the carpet? I mean, my sense, and this is the sense of someone who came to AE from the mysticism. So maybe uh, this is not a fully accurate sense. My sense is that he was a pacifist, so he did not join in the Rising, and he believed that there should be a possibility for all of Ireland to be independent, but but without bloodshed, and that turned out not to be the case. And so that sort of soured him on the Irish Republic. But that said, his flag is still flown, he was buried in great state uh, when, he, when he died in England, uh, was, was taken back to Ireland. He is a beloved founding father, and I think in the same way that Americans sort of know but don't care that uh, Benjamin Franklin was getting up to all manner of excitement, um, I, I feel like the Irish, for, for goodness sake, if, if there is a country more open and welcoming and happy to deal with your sort of mild eccentricities, of which I imagine theosophy is considered, than Ireland... I can't even imagine what it would be. Um, so I, I think that people in Ireland, and we, maybe we should ask some Irish people about this, or maybe they will write angrily in, um, uh, venerate him <laughs> or as, text us on Slack. as one of the more, um, uh, one of the more, uh, uh, harder to remember founding fathers of their great republic. And, oh yeah, he was magic. That's cool. But I mean, again, William Butler Yeats, right? Their national poet was absolutely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs magic. Everyone loves William Butler Yeats, so why not love A.E.? That's what I would say. So uh, he had connections to uh, James Joyce and P.L. Travers. Tell us about that. Yes, he was he was their mentor. He basically recognized Joyce's talent very early, got him connected to a bunch of people, including publishers. Uh, and then in um, uh, Ulysses, uh, he appears on stage and he argues with Daedalus and says that Daedalus's theories on Shakespeare are stupid. And, uh, and, and Daedalus borrows money from him and, uh, says A-E-I-O-U. See, because <laughs> I, I think Joyce did that just, just to do that, just to time. do that joke. That's the whole reason the chapter yes, exists. And, uh, perhaps it, it was based on life, I'm guessing. Right. And, and, uh, it was in America that he met, uh, P.L. Travers. And she, of course, was also very mystically minded. She was, um, uh, a pupil of Gurdjieff. And so, uh, their mysticism, I suspect, drew them together, and he recognized her talent and sent her on. He did not have anything that we know of to do with Mary Poppins, but uh, he definitely recognized her as a, a fellow mystic and a good writer and sort of uh, gave her the sort of mentorship and guidance uh, that he gave to a lot of people, but we remember the super famous ones. Now, uh, I was busy roping him uh, into the Yellow King, but uh, he uh, moves to London in 1932 and uh, therefore, he could also be roped into some uh, Trail of Cthulhu, perhaps even some bookhounds action. Some strong bookhounds action. Like. And in fact, his sons uh, were selling his early manuscripts without telling him because they wanted money, um, which is understandable. And so uh, he was very mad at that. And one imagines that in a bookhoundsy type of universe, his early manuscripts might have been uh, more direct uh, connections with the outside that are not. Uh, with the watercolory scrim of his paintings or the, uh, the bland optimism, as Lovecraft put it, of theosophy. Uh, and so, uh, he might very much not want those manuscripts out because they have mythos truths in them. And so a, a bookhound might have come across it and, uh, AE, uh, is either trying to get it back or he dies, as I say, in England in 1935. And so they might be, uh, vultures at his funeral and carrying off uh, manuscripts uh, or, or books that he had that he was using. Another connection uh, for your bookhounds is that after he left theosophy uh, due to an argument over theosophy uh, in 1898, <laughs> he took over a hermetic brotherhood that had been founded by a different theosophist, Charles Johnston, and ran it from then until 1932. So it's a hermetic brotherhood. It's a secret tradition, personal instruction, 
Uh, people described it more as a social club than as a magic circle, but that's just how you disguise a magic circle. And so he may have carried the papers of the Hermetic Brotherhood or their it, operants. It, it's like book club with sigils. Book club with sigils, exactly. Uh, carried both the books and the sigils, if not the club, to London with him. So that's another uh, possible thing that bookhounds could be running around looking for. Uh, well, if we've given you uh, scenario seeds for two different games... Uh, and we're uh, coming up uh, to an hour worth of content. Can I think that we can call this podcast perfectly realized? Absolutely. It's practically a ideal state, much like Ireland. <laughs> well, on that note, I think it's, uh, it's time for us to uh, head on out. And perhaps next uh, week, we'll flatter some other nation that we admire. Doesn't seem likely, though. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagel. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Stop this podcast from being sucked into the Black Lodge by standing alongside beloved Patreon backers. Theron Bretz. Bill Durfee. Jesse Lowe. Alan Wilkins and Chris Sellers wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash users slash Ken Robin snag our top selling design time incorporated changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops on Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D Laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff <laughs> <laughs>